Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Welcome everyone and welcome to African Family Firm's Phoenix Conference. Happy International Women's Day to us all as we seek to break the bias. Today we're joined by a panel discussion co-hosted by African Family Firms and JTC exploring breaking the bias in succession planning. And I'm joined by um, wonderful panelists, um, Mrs. Tony Sunny, um, Ms. Foluke Keshinwo, Jody Hill, and Namakalo Chintu. So perhaps we can start with some brief introductions of each of you. Um, I'll start with Jody because you're right next to you, the first face I can see. Hi, and happy International Women's Day. I'm Jody Hill. I'm Deputy Head of Private Clients here in Jersey for JTC. JTC is an international firm, FTSE 250 listed in London, providing trust and corporate services, wealth planning, um, and just about everything you can think of in the fiduciary world. Great, thank you. Um, Namukali? Hi, I'm Dr. Namukali Chintu, and I'm the founder of Frontier Market Consultants. That is an exclusive advisory firm that works with family, uh, families and businesses. In addition, I'm non-executive director at Invesco Limited, as well as Arcadia Asset Management. And I started my career in investment banking and held a series of senior roles in proprietary capital and wealth management covering Africa. And uh, I am a former Rhodes Scholar and passionate about encouraging entrepreneurship and enabling diverse founders to thrive. Excellent. Um, Ms. Toy? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Tony Sani. I founded and I run an investment banking group um, called the Emerging Africa Group that has recently morphed into more of a principal investment company with the investment and banking group remaining as our core investments. Um, presently, um, we're invested in 10 business lines um, cutting across um, our core investment banking space, asset management, advisory, trusts, um, also um, microfinance banking, um, infrastructure finance, and financial technology. I have um, I've been in the banking and finance space for about three and a half decades now, and um, I'm particularly interested in family businesses because our business is also predominantly a family business. And um, we provide capital raising services for businesses, including family businesses. And of course, on the asset management and trust side, we also support such businesses. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. And lastly, definitely not least, Ms. Mufoluke. Good day, everyone. My name is Mufoluke Keshiro. I'm a lawyer by training. I have about 20 years experience in succession planning, wealth transfer planning. I've been opportune to sit on uh, the boards of family businesses. And it's just very interesting to, you know, experience the business of, you know, wealth transfer, succession planning, and 
you know, trusteeship. And um, I'm looking forward to an exciting time today. Thank you. Thank you. And as we all know, International Women's Day this year, the theme is breaking the bias. So I wanted to ask each of you, what does that mean to you? Can I start with you, Ms. Wolfaluka? Thank you very much, um, moderator. I would say, you know, uh, breaking the bias means to me on learning some prejudices, you know, prejudices um, with respect to, you know, cultural inclinations, uh, mannerisms, lifestyle, and ensuring these prejudices are not, you know, do not form the way we perceive or we, we act out, you know, um, um, to, 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 towards them. Basically, just ensuring we break, we, we stop, we prevent, we do not act out, you know, the, 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 the perceptions or preconceived ideas about certain subject matters. Thank you. Okay, next please, Ms. Toye. All right, thank you. So for me, uh, breaking the bias is, is a call, and, and I think it's an urgent call. So I like the choice of the word break, which sounds very forceful. It's an invitation to everybody, um, male and female, to take direct steps to essentially break down, um, or maybe I don't want to use the word break down now and say deconstruct the existing social, contract, uh, social constructs that currently inhibit, hinder, and sometimes outrightly prohibit women from um, performing our roles and, and from having equal opportunity to economic um, governance, and other to participate in economic governance and other community roles um, as the other gender. So th that's the call for me to break all forms of bias, but particularly gender bias. Excellent. And Namukari? So for me, I understand bias as involving favorable and unfavorable beliefs or attitudes about a group that determines how we perceive and behave with that group. In this particular instance, we're talking about women. And when we're biased towards a certain thing, you know, such as women, it is very difficult to make a fair judgment. Now, I would also like to deconstruct that and break bias into conscious and unconscious bias. So conscious bias is the biased attitudes about a certain group we're aware of. And in conscious bias, we know that we're being biased and we're doing it intentionally. So, for example, a person prefers to work with men rather than women. And these are all prejudices which can discriminate against certain groups of people, women in this case. And in addition, conscious bias can be easily determined by the ideas and very, very sort of out there. But then you've also got unconscious bias and it's implicit bias. It refers to bias attitudes that operate outside our awareness and control. So in other words, you may not be aware that you hold such biased attitudes unconsciously. And here you may be doing something without realizing you're doing it. And in fact, this unconscious bias can be in direct contrast to the beliefs and values that we profess to hold. So the dangerous thing about this is that we don't realize that our behavior has been biased. 
And I think these two types of biases are very important in thinking about family businesses, which is the theme of, of, of today's discussion. And I think one of the, the biggest areas, in fact, three of the businesses are, one, running a family business, two, succession planning for a family business, and thirdly, estate planning um, for uh, individuals. And when you then start to apply conscious bias and unconscious bias concepts to these three pillars, running a business, succession planning in a business, as well as estate planning for individuals, you begin to see how these things um, begin to play out. And, and I'll stop there for now. I'm not sure that there's much I can add to that, really. These, these fantastic ladies have, have made a great picture of what bias is and break, what breaking the bias might look like. For me, I think it's important that we acknowledge that these biases exist um, in our industry, in, in every industry, in every walk of life. Um, and by being conscious of them, um, we can help to break them by, just by talking about them, by making these things be part of our everyday discussions and a part of our discussions with clients, with intermediaries, within the industry. And by being aware that these, these biases exist, we can, we can help to break them down just, just by putting them out. Thanks for that, Jodie. And um, the next question is really speaking through specifically biases in the succession planning process that commonly found in family businesses. Can you, um, from your experience, can you share from what you've seen? I think, I think bias exists at all levels, within all businesses, within all families. And um, as Namakali says, both conscious and unconscious. And um, for me, the, the biases that exist in our industry just make a complex situation even more complex in many, in many times. And often this only comes to fruition, it only comes to light in a moment of crisis. So already, something has broken down. Um, somebody's biases have, have, have made a difficult situation for somebody else in a family or, you know, it's led to a breakdown in some way before us as professionals are often even involved. And you can always help, um, but to have had some forethought and planning around when these might come up in an ideal world, that, that is the best we can have, you know. If everybody has time, which is often a real luxury in a family business, um, but time to step away, to think about how, how they want their businesses to run, how they, where those conflicts with family members may arise, taking that precious time and thinking it through before you're in a crisis can make a huge difference to, to your quality of life, to your relationships, to to how you interact with the family and ultimately how successful your business can be. Um, so I think it's our job as professionals to have those difficult conversations, to draw out where those biases may already exist, to really ask the difficult questions that mean that we are addressing where problems may come in the future. I think, I think just to, to add on to what you um, talked about, and feel free um, UK and, and to Florian to step in, but um, you know some of the important questions to consider in succession planning is: is the business viable into the next generation? 
and if so do family members not currently in the business intend to join the business and and this is a very fundamental question because when you have both male and female family members the way you think about their participation in the business comes into play a lot of the families that i've worked quite closely with prefer to have the male uh, family members be actively involved in the business compared to the female family members and and how does this all sort of play out because when the female family members have taken a step back what does that mean when you move into the next phase because obviously succession planning is connected to the business whereas estate planning is really thinking about an individual's sources of wealth and how this individual wants to manage that wealth um for their final healthcare directors you know cost and indeed distribution of assets so when you you know succession planning and estate planning are an integral conversation that families should have pretty much almost at the same time or at least in parallel so that they're well coordinated is that if you are going to be consciously biased or even unconsciously biased you need to think through exactly what the intentions are and what the outcomes are going to be for the business as well so in thinking about succession planning in terms of how the business would be taken over and who takes over it and why this also spills into estate planning which is what what happens you know um once uh, the person or 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 family different family members pass on and how do they manage the the distribution of their wealth to to the next Really insightful. I'd love to hear from your thoughts, Mokuluka um, Anthony. Okay, thank thank you very much. I would like to look at it from two aspects. I would like to look at you know the cultural bias. I think it's been mentioned by Namukale regarding you know having the male child you know take over the business. Usually, that preference for for oh, the male child having maybe preconceived. Um, better competence than females and also from you know where where I practice in Nigeria you have the when you start conversations around business succession and you tell them oh what are your plans around you know ensuring this family business outlives you and you hear the client say something like oh are you telling me i'm not going to be around in the next few years or you say to them oh you know you need an healthcare plan would say oh no not 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 me are you trying to tell me i'm not going to have control of my senses in a few years or no all is well with me and they you know they put the religious bias there as well saying oh everything all is well with me they they soak themselves with the blood and you know make such um um communications or information or instances where in your will when the testator writes his will and you have the substitution clause written out in the will and you say oh where a beneficiary is unable to you know enjoy the benefit as stated in this will maybe um you know a substitute should enjoy it would say oh please take it out take it out my children will not i will they will predecease i would predecease them and they will not die before you know i get to they get to enjoy this asset you know having to un- make them understand that the necessary steps around you know this having a succession plan having an estate plan having that seamless flow of transferring wealth asset to the next generation is the critical 
part of the conversation you're having with them, educating them and getting them informed on, you know, this step they are taking and the importance of taking this step. You know, uh, Namkali mentioned, is the business even viable enough to pass on to the next generation? Or maybe the business should be sold and maybe the funds used for certain critical needs within the family or maybe another venture. You know, these are conversations that should be had. However, you know, the bias around, oh, this is my blood and sweat. I'm going to let it grow regardless of whatever the circumstances are. It should be passed on. Thank you. All right. So what I will add is in addition to the gender bias, um, which is very clear um, in most of our cultures, um, which is towards um, having the male son, there's also the, um, sorry, the male child inherits. There's also the preference to have the first child inherit. So age is also one of the types of bias you would find culturally in succession planning. There is the implied um, preference for the older child to be the one that would carry on the um, business line, but it doesn't automatically work like that. Sometimes the more suited successor is a younger child or the youngest. So those those are some of the um, prejudices and biases that we probably want to have in mind uh, and address. Another one is sometimes to prefer the child that carries the family name. So, um, of course, not only are you then biased against or prejudiced against the daughters, you are also prejudiced against the children of daughters because, you know, there's a feeling that, you know, you want to carry on the family name. And so you prefer the son of the son as opposed to um, the or the daughter of the son in some cases. Um, as opposed to the son of a daughter. So those are some of the biases that would come up in succession planning. And um, I guess our job as professionals is to is to draw attention to them and, and, and seek to find ways in which we can convince families that um, you have to take the best decision at the end of the day for the succession of the business. Thank you. Um, a few of you have mentioned the need to have these difficult conversations. And I'm just intrigued. Um, how do you break the ice and have these difficult conversations with your clients? Um, with Luca, Jody, Namakali. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You know, when you, you, you have the meetings, you sit, there's usually a, a checklist and the checklist is to, you know, elicit information around the general plan, the statement of intention. And when reviewing the statement of intention with the client, one thing comes to mind, the fact that they want their desired beneficiaries to access the assets and to ensure, you know, family unity is uh, preserved. If that is the driving force, it's important for you to ensure that all necessary steps to achieve these objectives is done. What, what, what steps are we talking about here? We're talking about you've taken out time to speak to a professional, to engage a professional, to guide you through the process. And you are convinced the professional has the requisite skill to do it. Listen, let me recommend to you, you know, it's like a doctor-patient relationship. You take to the prescription of your doctor. You 
you you whatever it says he does a diagnosis and he tells you oh these are the, the, the this is the recommendation and these are the drugs you should use so from that angle some of them tend to listen or some will tell you oh let me sleep over it at a later date then they maybe do some consultations and come back and you agree at um, a way forward thank you all right what i would add is that sometimes you know we do need to be subtle because um it's not a pill that um the client wants to swallow easily so i would generally say to them okay i understand that you would like your son to succeed you oh he's a brilliant young man i mean he has good credentials but why don't you have a succession um preparation or succession readiness program and um so can you put your son in through a program for the next time? Um, we do a lot of capacity building, for example, within our group. It's one of um, the areas that we operate in. We actually mentor executives and C-suite executives. So why don't you, you know, send your son to a series of programs over the next couple of years to prepare him? And by the way, it might not be a bad idea to have an heir and a spare. So can you also send your daughter or send, you know, up to three of your heirs to this kind of preparation program. And then can we put together a way in which we're going to assess how they're performing in these sessions and, you know, and then you have some trial runs for them to take on responsibilities during the period. So over time, it may become obvious that one party is better prepared than the others. So that would be one of the subtle ways I would go about this conversation. So not from day one saying nominate this person as your definite heir, but say, look, prepare, you know, prepare the next generation. In fact, I would recommend prepare the entire next generation so that at some point or the other, you know, they can step in and play roles. Yes, they can't all be number one, but maybe they, the others will be executive directors as well. Why not prepare them all? So, so that's, that's one approach. I think what I would, would add to Toyin and Mofuluke is, is, is that um, all of these things take time. So when you have a, a, a head of a family business who's 95 and they're now thinking about having that conversation, it's very different to a head of a family business who is 55 and they want to start having that conversation. Okay. So, so one of, you know, one of the biggest factors is time. The second is trust and relationships because our relationships with our clients take a long time to build. Um, as advisors, you're able to see the nuances and the dynamics within the family so that you're able to support them at working towards a solution that works best for them. And in the case of conscious bias, where it's very clear um, that the family wants a successor who has the family name, who is male, you need to find a way to make the decision equitable for the other family members. So for example, there's some families that I've supported in the past where it was very clear that every male family member gets equity in the business and every female family member gets a cash payout for them to start their own business with their partner when they get married. Now, obviously you can have a very uh, moral conversation about whether it's fair or not, but within the family and within their governance structures, that is what is working for them. And so you have to make sure that you put in place structures 
And as, as Toyin said, an heir and a spare, but even within the heir and the spare, nobody, not everybody's going to be an heir and a spare. So what happens to the rest? And you have to make sure that everyone is um, happy. It doesn't mean everyone has to get the same to be happy, but, uh, but that everyone, you know, that there, is, there is that harmony in the business so that the business doesn't end up um, crumbling. Excellent. And Jodi? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I think it's our job to ask the difficult questions. We, as advisors, are shining a spotlight on where, where the families often need to focus their attention and their time and, and think through these things. You know, they may not have immediate answers, but we are there to make sure it stays on the agenda and an answer becomes clear over time. Um, and also, you know, often my role is acting as a trustee and it's a long-term position and and we have corporate memory of of how we have got to this point which which may be lost over time you know my predecessors would have worked with patriarchs of families who have already passed on the the mantle to the next generation by the time I'm involved and and we have those files we have that memory and that corporate responsibility to our beneficiaries of our trusts to ensure that 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 understanding is passed on to the next generation. Um, and, and our role can be that to, to help provide some context, but also to make sure that you know, we are making it work for the next generation and we are protecting and enhancing the, the wealth that has been hard fought and hard earned a lot of the time. Um, and it may be that those answers are not easy. You get to a point where nobody in the family wants to take on the, the responsibility of the family business. Maybe it needs to be sold. Maybe it needs to be you know, distributed in some other way. Um, but we can hopefully, as advisors, understand the dynamics and, and the biases that may exist. We can help the family from, a, from, from outside to, to point them where we may find we you know, we have common experience and can help guide and and preserve their wealth. Excellent. Um, we've kind of touched on my next question, but I'd like to just um expand it a little bit more, and that's really speaking to the distinction between unconscious biases and conscious choices. And we're confronted by each of these um, scenarios. How, as an advisor. How, like you kind of spoke to that Namukali, where the example you gave, where the females in the family would get a cash payout and the males would get equity inheritance. Um, what steps can one take as an advisor to deal with under both scenarios, conscious biases, sorry, unconscious biases and conscious choices? I think what I, I, I would say is, is interestingly, um, there are times where a, a culture imposes a conscious bias and the individuals actually want to mitigate against that um, cultural conscious bias. So um, one of the examples is where uh, some families will want succession planning to go towards the female uh, and estate planning to go towards the female, but where perhaps Sharia law um, does not permit for that. And so that becomes a very interesting um, uh, aspect. I know you talked about the distinction between conscious and unconscious, but when you sort of flip it around, sometimes there's a conscious bias that everyone's aware of and individuals and family businesses want to attack it head on. 
And so it, in that particular case, it's about finding the necessary structures in place, um, uh, perhaps offshore, that ensure that there is still compliance with the cultural and religious requirements, but at the same time ensuring that the party that is the subject of that bias is, 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 also, um, uh, uh, is also protected. So, so there are cases in which uh, there is clear conscious bias and the families want to attack that conscious bias head on. And then there are cases where um, uh, there is conscious bias and unconscious bias, as you say, and, and it's our role as advisors, as Jody explained, to ask those difficult questions just so that you can determine whether it really is conscious bias or it is unconscious bias. And if it is unconscious bias, is there a way to unpack it and, and, and deal with it head on so that we're very clear whether you know, the, the family's choice is conscious or unconscious? And if unconscious, is there a way in which we can get past that uh, for them to be able to have a lot more insight in the way the businesses are run and handed over? Excellent. Does anybody else have any um, comments on this question? Perhaps I'll throw in um, another one then. Um, what are your thoughts on anti-humor for Luke? Because you spoke about specific kind of planning tools and how you face, you often see resistance from your families. What about prenuptials, for instance, um, for, as a tool for succession planning for families? Okay, um, thank you. Yeah, prenuptials are, you know, from, from where I operate, they're a good tool of, you know, estate planning. And it's good for families because, you know, helps that, you know, separation of assets before marriage and during the marriage. However, you know, in Nigeria, you, you say oh, to a couple, you sign a prenuptial and they say to you, oh, are you preempting, you know, the end from the very beginning? It's already some omen that oh, you're not going 100%. You are looking at the possibility of, you know, that um, you should do such, make such a recommendation that a prenuptial, you know, contract or agreement should be signed before the, the uh, vows are taken. I haven't had the opportunity or to, to make such recommendations because of where I operate. However, when there are signs around you know, uh, a spouse not being, not likely to, 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 to do well. Okay. There's a particular family I've had the opportunity of advising around and, um, the, the patriarch wasn't too comfortable with the choice of the spouse of the lady. And, um, he said that the son would not have access to some benefits within the estate until after 10 years into the marriage and seeing and being convinced that, or oh, the spouse is not there for the family wealth. That condition was placed there. However, I never had the opportunity of, you know, um, recommending a prenuptial contract or agreement to, to him, but he felt comfortable with that condition contained in the estate plan. Okay. I don't know if I can chip in here. I, 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 I hear you, Mofoluke, and, and I know you, right? Because um, 
a lot of um, families and individuals are not yet comfortable with prenups, um, and um, so it will take some time to 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 sell the benefits. But I think sometimes the manner in which it's communicated could be helpful. So if the communication is that this family member who is getting married is essentially a custodian of family assets. And these family assets are intended to be held in trust for the next generation and the next generation. And that there are other interests in this family, other members of this family that should equally have access to these assets. And so we we need to separate these assets from the assets that you as a couple are going to acquire. And so the purpose of the prenup is to preserve the family assets for the purpose and um, of the, 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 the declared purposes of the family and not treat them as personal assets to be um, accessed by the couple. Um, it may help. So, so that's how I would go about presenting it, which would be, you know, this person is inheriting certain assets that don't belong to them or they're holding certain assets that don't ultimately don't belong to them alone. And so this prenup is going to preserve that. And then as a couple, whatever you then, you know, make together, you know, you can share together. So, so that, that could work because I think that the prenup is a, is a very powerful tool in a situation like this. The family is naturally concerned about keeping the assets and the family control, especially control over the family business, the shares. Um, the family is concerned about that. The family is typically concerned about making sure that the control over the company or the shares of the company don't go to the hands of either somebody who, is, um, who does not share the vision of the family or who is an outright gold digger. So, so um, but, but I guess the gold digger question is not the one that will be put in front what will be put in, because that would be regarded as offensive, but what will be put in front is that there's an implied trust over these shares, and these shares cannot just go with, with the rest of your assets, um, as would naturally happen in a marriage. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I agree with you. However, you know, in this situation, we're advising the patriarch, you're not advising the the um, the spouse or the son in this case. So, if you moot you know, um, the, the, the idea of a prenup with the son. And already the son understands or knows that the father is not comfortable with the lady he intends to marry. He, he, he gets uncomfortable. He gets, the conversation changes. And the father wants to ensure or maintain, you know, that unity, that semblance of, oh, everything is okay, I'm fine. You can proceed with the, you know, with the, wedding plans of the you know marrying this particular person you know there are a lot of sensitivities around these conversations and the reason is you know evident the patriarch has need to ensure control of the assets within the family he doesn't want to rock the boat especially with respect to you know his son his beloved son as the case is and the choice of the son regarding you know, uh, the spouse. So, so I hear you when you say, yes, um, the, the way the, the conversation is muted. And for me, I agree totally because if that conversation, if a prenup is muted to, to, to the son and the son says, no, I don't want my spouse to sign such an agreement. I want everything to be jointly owned by us. Immediately we get married. The father would be uncomfortable. There'll be distrust. 
and the relationship might be shaky at that point in time. So actually selling the value of a prenup is good. However, all parties need to be on board regarding the value or, or, or the, the uh, benefits that accrues. Thank you. I, I agree, and I think you both have great examples. I think for me, this links back to my initial, um, one of my initial comments in that the benefit in an ideal world that you have these conversations outside of, the, of a crisis situation. So before there is a spouse or potential spouse, which is potentially a problem. Um, so you have them in a sort of non-controversial, a what-if scenario in an ideal world before there's even a spouse on the scene a lot of the time. So you agree as a family, how would we approach this? If this situation comes up, what would we do? And we agree as a family that this is our preferred way of dealing with this situation. And as advisors, we can help guide those conversations. We can bring up the what-if scenarios. What if there's a spouse which your dad doesn't like? What if you're going through a divorce and it's very acrimonious and everybody is wanting a piece of me? What if that you marry somebody who's in the public eye and you're bringing publicity and paparazzi and attention to the family? What do we do in these different situations? And maybe a prenup is part of that, a part of the solution to that problem. But ideally, we can have these conversations before they become a problem. So when there is a problem, we all go back to that document and say, this is how we deal with it. And as a family, it brings some unity and a, and a sort of pathway to find the way through the crisis. Excellent, Jodie. I think that's a, a really powerful point in that. So it doesn't make it personal about this specific son and his choice of a spouse and creates unnecessary fraction and also then gives time for mm -hmm. the family to be educated on the benefits of a prenup for instance and how it could add value to their family wealth and their family legacies wanted to ask last question what other practical steps or tools can families use to break the bias start with you jody i think that's something that really has has come out of these conversations i think the benefits of spending time and thinking about these things and having open, honest conversations, probably moderated by a trusted advisor, people, uh, you know, people who have known your family for a long time, but can take that sort of outside of you to ask the difficult questions, to bring up the scenarios. I think those are all tools that a family business is, is always going to be time poor and it, and it feels difficult to make that time. But I think all of us here today can, can speak to situations where that hasn't happened and people really wished it had. Um, so I think it, it, it's a really difficult one to balance, but to try to take yourself out of and just for a short time and spend this time on thinking about your legacy and your future and how it fits in with your family plan, drawing up some sort of family charter, thinking about your estate and your succession, it is never a time that is regretted. It can make things much easier. Awesome. Anyone else have any comments in response to the question? Um, yeah, I think I would just, uh, I, I would echo what you, uh, what Jodie has said. Um, I think a family business can be run uh, similar to a corporate in the sense that 
they have annual retreats, strategy days, and rather than just have the strategy day for the company, I think they do need to take the day for the family, at which, as Joseph said, um, family charter can be drawn up, family governance structures, and these governance structures are underpinned by what the family's objectives are, and these family objectives are underpinned by um, open conversations around bias and the vision of the family because when these um, basic tenets of where they see the family how they view other members of the family are developed these then inform the family charter and the governance structures and these then inform the way in which the family business is is run and so I think it's really about going back to first principles and taking the time to go back to first principles to be able to inform what the rules are. Because once the rules are written, it's hard to go back and rewrite the rules. And once the rules are written and the rules are put into practice, um, any conscious or unconscious bias is already set in stone and it's going to be very, very hard to reverse. Excellent. Honestly, there's nothing much to to add to those excellent views um, that have already been expressed. Um, and, and the truth is just um, making sure you ask exhaustive questions. So scenario building, um, questions that ordinarily um, may be far-fetched, but what we have discovered is that there is nothing, really nothing new under the sun and everything that we thought could never happen has happened at some point or the other. So, having um, those sessions at which the advisors, you know, work uh, or walk the family through um, a series of scenarios and possibilities um, and having um, and a good understanding come up, evolve as to what the priorities of the family are and what the family under no circumstance wants to happen um, will help to craft, you know, a charter that will guide the family. And the other thing that I would say is that I believe that um, everything is dynamic. The world itself is changing. And even some of these old families that had um, certain policies and principles on inheritance and succession um, have had to come back again and sit down and and change their minds, so to speak. So the review mechanism. So this charter, these rules, these guidelines, these governance codes will also have to have, you know, how frequently you want to review and under what circumstances and who um, would have the power to review what proportion of voting members of the family can revise and upgrade these things because we are in a dynamic world. So that's the only thing I would add. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. Um, Does anybody have any questions for the panelists? If you do, please um, share in the chat box or you can go ahead and unmute yourself and just speak. But I had one question, and that was, um, we're talking about breaking the bias in succession planning, and we all happen to be female. And I do wonder that as advisors, do we have any internal biases ourselves um, whilst we are advising our clients? And if so, how do we handle those? So anyone that wants to tackle that question, please go ahead. Um, what I would say... Go for it, Toyin. Okay, thank you. What I would say is that... Um, it is very advisable that we operate within the context of a corporate entity 
uh, and have our own governance even within our own organizations. So um, we are human beings and we all do have our biases. And one of the most common biases is what is called the similarity bias. So um, if there is a very brilliant uh, daughter in that family, I can assure you that she's likely going to sound more brilliant to me than the son because I'm going to assume that, you know, um, maybe she's not being given a fair opportunity because we, we do have our biases. So that's where I'm going. So but what helps is that even as I advise my clients, I'm not advising my clients as an individual. I'm advising my clients as a representative of a corporate firm. And um, we would have our internal discussions within the guidelines of um, confidentiality. But typically we would have our own internal um, guidelines as to how we should advise our clients and hopefully that will provide some buffer against my own uh, inherent biases. Excellent, excellent. In absence of any other questions, please, um, how can um, people reach each of you? They want to learn more about your work, learn more about how you can support them in their businesses. Starting with um, Namakali. So um, I can be found on LinkedIn and um, it's just uh, straight up uh, my name. Please feel free to, to, connect, uh, to connect with me. I'm uh, a fairly uh, active on LinkedIn. At least I do, do check my messages. So do keep in touch. Great. And Yes, I am very active on LinkedIn and it is exactly as it appears against my name here now, Tony F. Sonny. That's my LinkedIn identity. And of course, um, my organization has a website, www.emergingafricagroup.com. So I can be reached. But the fastest, quickest way to reach me personally is via my LinkedIn page. Thank you. Um, on LinkedIn as well, my identity is, um, as is written here, Mufoluke Keshiro. So, um, instant message, connect with me. I will chat you up. Thank you. And Jodi? Yeah, uh, much the same. My name is there, Jodi Hill. Um, my email is jodi.hill. Um, and our website is uh, jpcgroup.com. Um, you'll find my profile there and all my contact details there under our people section. I'm always happy to, to speak. Thank you, ladies. This was a really fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed um, this afternoon with you all. Thank you so much, everyone. And um, we reconvene tomorrow for our final day of the Phoenix Conference at 10 a.m. Lagos time, 11 a.m. Johannesburg time. Thank you. Thank you, Nike. Thank you, Nike. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.